So uh, I saw in a Rutherford report that less than one quarter of the people in the United States can list more than one of the freedoms that are guaranteed in the First Amendment of the Constitution. Now, there are five, and we're going to go for four, as one of them is a little obscure. One of them is kind of a gimme. We're doing it right now. That's the freedom of what? Well, religion, the freedom of religion. All right, just call them out if you know any of the others. It's freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of press, press, and there's one more, or Freedom of assembly, right, freedom of assembly. There's really one more. I think it's called like freedom to redress the government, but it's, like I said, it's kind of obscure. All right, you did really good. Also, only one-third can name all three branches of government. Well, let's go, let's go for it, all right? So <laughs> that's right, you got them all. It's judicial, executive, and legislative. All right, you passed your uh, citizenship test. You're good citizens and good patriots today. Why is that important? Because if we don't know, if we're ignorant of our Constitution and our freedoms, or if we lack confidence in them, we're vulnerable to losing the freedoms and the blessings of living under the rule of law in general and that law in particular. Same can be said for the Word of God. If we're ignorant of the Word of God or lack confidence and trust in it as the Word of God, then we become vulnerable to losing some of the blessings and freedoms that we gain from living under God's Word. And fortunately, in our study today, Peter reinforces for us the characteristics and the importance of God's Word. So we're in this sermon series, it's uh, through 1 Peter, and today it's the fearless key. My own kids were asking me after last week's sermon, Steve, how long are we going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1? You believe it, I get persecuted from my own family. But uh, this is the last sermon in chapter 1, the ninth sermon, by the way. But let's get the verses before us, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass. All its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So very simply today, five characteristics of the word of God. Number one, the word of God is truth. The word of God is truth. Since you have in obedience to the truth, that's obedience to the gospel, obedience to the word of God. The word of God is the truth about God. It's the truth about us about mankind. It is the truth about sin and the truth about salvation and how to obtain that salvation. It is the truth because it is the word that comes from God and God is true. What's that old fable about George Washington when he was a little boy and he chopped down the cherry tree and his father came to him and said, did you chop down the cherry tree? And George Washington, have you heard this? He said, I cannot tell a lie. Yes, I did it. I don't know if that's true about George Washington. He probably was capable of telling a lie. But the Bible says about God, it is impossible for him to lie. And so the syllogism kind of goes like this. It's impossible for God to lie. He is the truth. The word of God comes from him. Therefore, the word of God, what we know as the Bible, is true. It is truth. Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are truth. 
And then a few verses later, he asked his apostles, are you going to abandon me? Because some of his followers were abandoning him. And it was Peter, the author of this letter, who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of life and the words of truth. So the word of God is truth. Number two, looking just at five characteristics of God's word. The word of God is imperishable. Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. The word of God is compared to seed here because kind of penetrates our hard hearts and begins the life process. But there are some ways in which it's not like literal seed. Literal seed is corruptible. It can rot. I remember during the lockdowns, you know, my, both my son and I decided to plant victory gardens. Did anybody here plant a victory garden? Nobody going to admit to it? Maybe it was just me. I must have had 15 five-gallon buckets on my back porch, and I, I planted everything I could think of. I planted beans, tomatoes, potatoes, squash, cucumbers, had a, a whole variety of things. Because when the apocalypse came, I was going to feed my family from my garden, maybe the whole neighborhood, you know, when, when it all came to harvest time. Well, it turns out when harvest time came, uh, I found out the brutal truth that I'm not Farmer Jones. I had like five or six scraggly little cherry tomatoes. You couldn't have fed a rabbit from what I grew in my garden, much less a family or a neighborhood. It is hard to grow food. So now I just buy all my fruits and vegetables from Publix. But even then, if you don't eat them in time, what happens? They shrivel up. It's all corruptible. Seed is corruptible. All flesh is corruptible. But the Word of God is not. It is imperishable. Again, because it comes from God. The Bible calls him the imperishable king, the imperishable Lord. Now listen, it's not just imperishable in the sense that the word of God will always exist. But maybe more importantly, in the sense that what is taught in God's word as far as how to live will outlast all other worldviews, all other man-made religions and teachings. It will outlast them. There's a reason for that. Uh, in, in our culture, in our society, you realize this, truth is considered to be relative. Correct? Truth is relative. You can't make an absolute claim to truth. In fact, for me to stand up here as a Christian and suggest that Christianity is true, and if some other religion is in conflict or contradicts what te Christianity teaches, that that religion is false, that comes across as presumptuous, Right? This may be true for you, but not true for me. What is true for me may not be true for you. You have your truth, I have my truth. That's the sense that truth is relative in our culture. And the reason for that is what philosophers call the egocentric predicament. Now, I've talked about this in the past. I like to come back to it. It is a very useful concept for us to be familiar with. The egocentric predicament. Egocentric means man is, is central. And it says that because we are finite beings, all of us are finite beings, we're limited in how much we can know. Any given person can only know so much in their life, lifetime. We're limited, first of all, by our lifespan. So if somebody lives to be really old, they might live into their 90s or even into their hundreds. But even if someone lives to be 100, they can only learn so much of what there is to know in that one lifetime. All right, if you read books of, of people who lived in the past, you can expand that knowledge and you might incorporate some of the things that some other people have learned in their lifetimes. But even still, 
There are far more books that you're never going to read than the books that you can read. We're limited geographically. You know, we live in a certain space and in a certain time. A person may travel the world, but still there are far more places they haven't been than they have been. So when you make a truth claim, this is what the egocentric predicament, the problem is. When you make a truth claim and claim that it is absolute, how can you possibly know that? How can you know there's something that you haven't learned that actually contradicts what you think is true? Speed of light. We talked about that before, 186,000 miles per second. That's the speed of light. How do you know there's not a galaxy out there that you have not yet visited where physics are different, and that's not the speed of light? So science just describes not laws, but just how nature acts every time it's been tested. But there could be exceptions. You ever heard of a black swan? Back in Europe, a black swan was a euphemism for things that cannot exist because nobody in Europe had ever seen a swan that wasn't white until a traveler went to Australia and discovered a black swan. Now, a black swan is a euphemism for us for something that's a surprise event. Right? There's a book called The Black Swan about surprise events. Right? So that's what I mean. That's the egocentric predicament. There's nobody with a view from nowhere, so to speak, in secular society. But here's the difference. And that would be true if it were not for God. And because there's a God, we believe there's a God who is not bound by an egocentric predicament. He is not finite. He's not bound by one lifetime. He is omniscient. He knows everything there is to know with complete certainty. What's happened in the past, what's happening now, what will happen in the future. He is omniscient. He is the creator and stands outside the space-time continuum and apart from his creation. He has the view from nowhere and he has delivered to us a revelation. In spoken word originally, but then in the written word, an objective revelation. And because it comes from that source, we can lay claim to absolute truth. What is in the Word of God is absolutely true, therefore everlasting and imperishable. All right, we're looking at characteristics of the Word of God. Here's a third one. The Word of God is living, Peter says. The Word of God is living through the living and enduring Word of God. The Hebrew writer says this more explicitly. Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. To say that the Word of God is living means that it has an energy and a power to penetrate our hard hearts. It also is to say that the Word of God points to the right way of life, the righteous way of life, what philosophers call the good life. It is the living Word of God. Now, once a month here at Vera Christian Church, we have what we call our Discover class. So if you're visiting the church and maybe looking for a church home, maybe thinking about Vera Christian Church, that's the next step for you. And it happens after our third worship service. And it was last Sunday. It was Discover Sunday for the month of October. So we had a lady who stayed. Her name was Wendy. And it was just she and I that particular Discover Sunday. So I got to, I got to hear more of her story than I usually do when we have a large group in there. I said, tell me your story. How, tell me how you became a Christian. Wendy was born in China. She was born and raised in China until she was about 
30-something years old. She was raised by atheist, communist parents. They did not go to church. They did not have a Bible in the home. They did not talk about God. They were atheists. That's all she was raised with. That's all she believed. Until she was around 21 years old, and she was 21, they had a radio that was playing in the home. There was a broadcast coming in from Taiwan. It was hard to hear because the Chinese government was jamming that broadcast. There was a lot of static. But nevertheless, she picked up on one word in that broadcast, and that word was God. Somebody, for whatever reason, said the word God. She said that word wormed its way into her consciousness. And she began to think to herself, what is God? Who is God? What is this God? She began a search for truth about God. Eventually, she connected with the underground church in China. She got hold of some scriptures and read the scriptures. And this led to her conversion. She was baptized into Christ, even though that resulted in her being persecuted by her own parents and eventually leaving the country, coming to America. But I thought, and there's more to that story, but that's all I want to tell right now relevant to this point. I thought, isn't that interesting? It only took one word to begin the process, the, the living word of God changing her heart. That is not your story, your identical story. But all of us in here, most of us are Christians, we have a similar story somewhere at some point in your life and mine. We were exposed to the living Word of God. It began to awaken spiritual life within us, and we pursued that until we were born again. The, living God, the, word, the word of God is living. Now, here's a fourth one. The Word of God is enduring. The word of the Lord endures forever. It is never obsolete. It never goes out of style. Other things do. Uh, I was raised in the 70s and the 80s. There are things in the 80s that are now obsolete. I want to show you some pictures. Some of you, I can see back there, are so young, you may not even know what these are. But let's identify them as we put them up. We're going to put them up quickly. What's that? I haven't seen one in a long time, but when I was a kid, I rode in one to Texas every summer for vacation. Seatbelts, forget about it. You lay down there in the back and you sleep, right? All right, what is that? Blockbuster. Go to Blockbuster on Friday night, pick out a great movie. Let's go. Justin, what's the next one? Hey, anybody have one of these? What is that? That's a Walkman. I wore out many a Walkman. Next one. All right, yeah, you see Young people, you stick your finger in there and you dial the number. Rotary phone. All right, next. Phone booth. You don't see these anymore. How does Superman do what Superman has to do? Okay. What is that? Water bed. How many people had a water bed? Yeah. Put that thing up on the second floor, right? Catastrophe waiting to happen. All right, what is that? Where is that ashtray? It's in the car. In the 80s, not only did everybody smoke, they rolled up the windows in the station wagon and let's all breathe secondhand smoke in the car. All right, what are these? Floppy disks, not so floppy. And, oh, hey, that's still around, right? An ancient cell phone. Anybody have one of these bricks? Yeah, I had one, had one. Okay, is that it? We got, oh, one more. Ancient typewriter, ancient typewriter. Okay, 
Hey, things wear out, they become obsolete, but the Word of God is anti-fragile. Now, I use that word purposely, anti-fragile. Nassim Nicholas Talib has a book called Anti-Fragile. Uh, the Black Swan is actually one of his books as well. And it was in that book I learned the phrase, the Lindy effect, or the idea of the Lindy effect. The Lindy effect is the idea that the older, the, the older something is, the longer it has existed, the more likely it is to exist. Not necessarily a people, biological things, more like a books and ideas. For instance, if a book's been around for 40 years, then the Lindy effect says you can probably count on it being around for another 40 years. But here's the thing. If that book lasts 10 more years, so now it's been in existence for 50 years, most likely it's going to be around for another 50 years. That's the Lindy effect. Bitcoin. Bitcoin has been around for about 10 years. The Lindy effect says it's likely it'll be around for another 10 years. But if it goes five more years to so when it's 15, it's probably going to be another 15 years. So it's a way of using time to measure the robustness of a thing or an idea. And his point is, you should books, for instance, you should spend your time on those things that have demonstrated their robust life. So he would say, read the classics, not just the clickbait headlines, uh, you know, on your news feed. Well, by that measurement, the Lindy effect, the Word of God, the Bible, the Word of God has been around probably generally around 4,000 years, just rounding a little bit. But if you say Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament and he was writing about 16 or 1500 BC, then you're coming out about 4,000 years. You can expect the Word of God to be around for another 4,000 years. That's just the written Word of God. It was preceded by the spoken Word of God, which is in fact eternal, eternal. That's, that doesn't prove anything as far as the truthfulness of the Word of God, but it just goes to show it is a robust truth that we can depend on, count on, and give our lives to. It's one final thing I want to say, bring out from Peter and the Word of God. The Word of God is compelling, and, and really the idea here is, is compels love, love in our lives. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. When you're born again, you are forgiven. Two things happen, you're forgiven, and then the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. We are born again in several things for several reasons. One of them is for love. Peter uses the two words that are used for love in the New Testament, the two Greek words. Now, there are three Greek words, but two of them are used in the New Testament. He uses both of them in that passage. The first one is Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love because Philadelphia means love. It means when we're born again, we become Christians, we automatically become a part of a family with brotherly love. I mean, there's a universal church, but you, you come into a local church family characterized by brotherly love. But Peter goes beyond that, and he uses the second Greek word for love. When he says, fervently love one another from the heart, what Greek word is the second Greek word? Really well known, agape. Agape, fervently love from the heart. That is something, as Peter describes it here, we must stretch 
toward and put effort into. It's possible for us because we are born again, because the Holy Spirit is working with us. He shed His love abroad in our hearts. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest. But the first one and the overarching one is love. The Holy Spirit helps us, but we cooperate with Him in loving our brothers and sisters in the church. In June of 1972, as the United States was drawing down troops from the Vietnam conflict, the South Vietnamese Air Force mistakenly dropped a load of napalm on the village of Tri Bien. An AP photographer was recording the carnage from a road leading out of town when he saw several children, including a naked young girl, burned by the blast running down the road. The picture he took became one of the iconic images of the terrible conflict, Fan Team Kim was that nine-year-old girl who became known informally as Napalm Girl. In a recently released documentary, she shared, quote, I remember June 8, 1972. I saw the airplane. It was close, so close to me. Suddenly, the fire everywhere around me, the fire burned off my clothes. Kim, who is now a Canadian citizen, was taken to a U.S. hospital where she survived third-degree burns to 30% of her body. The blast left her deeply scarred, not just on her body. She said, she said, it built me up with hatred, bitterness, anger. I was living the question, why me? In 1982, I wanted to take my life because I thought after I die, no more suffering, no more pain. But at her darkest hour in the capital city of a communist country, a miracle took place in her life. She says, I found the New Testament in the library in Saigon, and I began to read. In Christmas of 1982, she says, I became a Christian. Jesus changed my life. Since I have faith, my enemies list became my prayer list. I realized myself, wow, Kim, you pray for your enemies. This means you love. Love set my heart free. The Word of God is compelling. It compels love. Jesus told the story of a father with two sons. The youngest one came to him and asked for his inheritance before his father ever died, basically saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. He took it. He went off. You know the story. He wasted it in wild living. And there he had a change of heart while he was slopping the pigs. He repented. He came back to his father, back to the home, back to the family of love. And you know the father received him and, and celebrated. They threw a party. It's the picture of grace. And he had the older brother. So meanwhile, the older brother was outside and he was pouting. And the father goes outside to him. And the older brother says, that son of yours? And the father says, no, that brother of yours was lost, and now he's found. He was dead, and now he's alive, and we must celebrate. He was born again, and now the older brother needs to be born again to love. And notice the father is trying to penetrate his hard heart with his words, the father who represents God. You cannot love fervently and from the heart, our brothers and sisters in the church from outside. Can't love from outside. We have to come on in where the people are. I, I, I simply don't understand folks who say, well, I love Jesus, but I hate his wife, his bride, the church. Someone has said a Christian 
without a church should be as shocking and abnormal as finding a severed foot on the sidewalk. I know there's a church invisible, a church universal, but every Christian needs a real live church with real people whom we can love fervently from the heart. Can't love from the outside. Come on inside. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your word. We refresh our hearts and minds about the fact that it's true, it's eternal, it's living, but most of all, it's compelling. You have loved us, and now you say to us, I want you to love one another like brothers and from the heart. And we do, God. Thank you for welcoming us home. Help us to have that spirit that welcomes everybody else back to the family, your family. In Jesus' name, amen.